Hey, welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening. I think a lot of you are here for our live album series, and we are a couple episodes in. We're going through every Rush album in chronological, every Rush live album in chronological order, bringing on different guests to help us do that. And last week was only a few days ago we released last week's episode with Exit Stage Left. And we had a lot of fun talking about that album. The next live album we get in the catalog is Grace Under Pressure Live. And I have somebody here to talk to me. And we have a great record. A record that I didn't think I would love when I first heard it. But ended up listening to it nonstop for like a year. I don't think it ever left my car's CD player. Uh, so joining me today is Ted. And he's going to help us talk about this record. How you doing, Ted? I'll do a great Jay. Thanks for uh, inviting me onto the show. No problem. You're from, or you're you're in Austin, Texas, right now. That's right. Yeah, I've lived in Austin for about the last uh, ten years or so. Very cool. I know we have a lot of listeners in Austin, so hello to everybody in Texas. Uh, is this a, you know, what, what's your a brief history on your, on how you became a Rush fan, and why is this the album that you chose to represent? Yeah, so my history or my introduction to the band was, um, for me, it was actually um, the Moving Pictures release. So uh, at the time, uh, you, you didn't ask my age, but I'm kind of late 40s now. So at the time, I was uh, in middle school, and uh, the album came out, uh, I guess that was in February of 81. And, um, you know, they were they were playing a couple of the songs off the album as singles, um, Tom Sawyer and Limelight. Um, were playing on the radio at that time. And so I picked, picked it up a little bit there, but where I really got, got kind of into the band was, um, they actually came to uh, a city not too far away from me. I was living in Florida at the time and, uh, they came, uh, on the exit stage left tour to Hollywood, Florida, which was a couple hours South of me. And I had some, uh, classmates actually in seventh grade that were going to be going to the show. So leading up to that happening, which was like in November of 81, um, that was like all the talk in class, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that was what really got me intrigued about the band and, 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 uh, you know, actually bought the album at that point. I'd only heard the singles on the radio, um, but actually bought the, uh, the cassette, uh, the audio cassette, um, of moving pictures. And, uh, asked to go to the show. Um, I think one of your earlier guests had mentioned, uh, you know, concerts were a little bit different back in the late seventies and early eighties. And, um, being, I think I was like 12 years old at the time and this would have been two hours away. There was, there was no way my parents were going to let me go to that show. And, uh, although it was super disappointing at the time, I I would totally have done the same thing with my kid. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, that was when I got into the band. And of course, you know, after the show, people came back and just, you know, telling me about how awesome it was. And uh, from there, I just started, uh, you know, started uh, following the band. So this is really, I mean, assuming maybe you weren't aware of the Exit Stage Left release, this might have been your first live album. Um, no, no, actually, Exit Stage Left was the first live album that I bought. Um for me, uh, you know, being, uh, that age and not having a whole lot of funds, um, you know, I pretty much wasn't able to immediately fill out the back catalog in terms of the studio releases. So, uh, the biggest bang for the buck at the time was to buy the live albums. So mm-hmm. after buying moving pictures, I bought, uh, exit stage left and all the world's a stage. And, uh, that was kind of really my first introduction to any of the pre moving pictures tracks. And that continued for, for quite a while. I did buy, you know, the studio releases as they came out after Moving Pictures. But it wasn't until really college, which was a few years later, that um, I started fleshing out the actual studio albums uh, prior to Moving Pictures. Right. And you wouldn't, and, obviously, you wouldn't have had <clears throat> access to this album in 84 or whatever. Um, you, so you said you had seen this yeah, tour live? Yeah, you know, I mean... Excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. There's there's like a tiny delay, and we'll work around it. Um, I said you had had you seen this tour live? No, no. The first time I got to see them live was actually um, in 1987 on the 
hold your fire tour. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, is well, let me ask. Yeah, like, I, is, I, this I was. Uh, it's just such a weird uh, live album to me because I think Grace Under Pressure is such a unique and kind of eccentric album. I understand it with Twenty One Twelve. I understand a live album for Moving Pictures, but for Grace, uh, it kind of fits that every two year format. But um, is Grace Under Pressure as a studio album an album that stands out for you? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's I've uh, you know followed your podcast for a while now and heard your theory about you know people's favorite albums and kind of correlating to when they got involved in the band. And I guess that that pretty much holds true for me. Um, for me, probably the you know my favorite stretch of albums would be Moving Pictures through Power Windows. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, non sequentially, but then I would throw Hemispheres in as well. I mean, those are probably the favorite you know my favorite albums you know i listened to this grace under pressure live and the first thing i realized is it's super representative of its most current album grace under pressure it sounds like grace under pressure and you could say that about any live album you could say well yeah they're using the same gear they're in that same mindset uh creatively artistically but it just seems to be more so on Grace Under Pressure Live than it is on something like Snakes and Arrows Live or, or even Exit Stage Left. I, um, you know, those Moving Pictures tracks are very authentic on that record. But on Grace Under Pressure, the Grace songs sound like Grace, but every song on the record sounds like Grace Under Pressure. You know, they're playing, uh, let's pick a random track, Closer to the Heart. Witch Hunt, Vital Signs, they all sound like they have this grace under pressure kind of feeling. And we're going to talk more about what that vibe is, this kind of nuance that's sprinkled across the entire album on this live record. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And yeah, I'm sure we'll get into this more later. But, um, you know, that kind of stood out for me on, uh, it was, I believe, Witch Hunt. You know, which, uh, you know, the outro solo to that is normally Getty on bass. That's right. And for this particular for, for this particular performance, it was Alex doing the outro solo. And listening to that, I was like, this totally sounds like something off of Grace Under Pressure. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty interesting juxtaposition between, you know, a moving pictures track and what they had done with Grace. That's uh, one of the notes I had on Witch Hunt was that it seems that's just the way that song is performed live i know on the snakes recording of it it was the same thing that's a guitar solo at the end not a bass solo i think it's pretty clear why getty's a little busy with all those layered keyboard parts that he's playing and uh i i don't yeah, necessarily exactly. hate it i kind of like it as a guitar solo yeah i thought it fit perfectly well it was great well while while we're on witch, witch hunt let's talk yeah. about the fear trilogy that was performed in its entirety on this record and on this tour. Um, I've always yeah, said, you know, I guess maybe even before. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say maybe, maybe before we even jump into the tracks, um, just a little, little bit about the release. Uh, you kind of alluded to it a minute ago. You know, this one sort of broke the pattern of, you know, four studio albums and then a live album. And in fact, you know, this one came out sort of mid-cycle in terms of um, moving pictures, signals, or um, signals, power windows, uh, signals, grace, power windows, and hold your fire. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that was unusual about it even more so was that there wasn't actually an audio CD uh, when it first came out, right? It was just on uh, video cassette tape and Laserdisc mm -hmm. at the time of the release in uh, 85. So you had asked whether this was one of the first live albums that I had heard by Rush. And um, kind of like you mentioned, this was actually sort of a late, um, I guess, acquisition for me in terms of the, you know, the cumulative portfolio of the band. Um, I was looking through kind of the stuff that I had, and I do have an, an original copy of the VHS. Um, interestingly enough, it's sealed, so I don't really know what that's all about. <laughs> Um, I don't remember how I ended up having it and why it was sealed uh, at the time. Um, I know for a fact that the first live uh, video that I saw from them was actually Exit Stage Left. Um, a friend of mine, 
a friend of mine's father had the Laserdisc player at his house, so we actually rented the Laserdisc and uh, watched it. So that was the first live video I saw, and, and I didn't actually come into um, this particular show until um, it was released on uh, as part of the replay set, um, at least as far as my memory in terms of actually watching it. Like and I said, this I do was have what, like VHS two, tape, 2006 but, um, or 2008 or something? Yeah, so 2006, they came out with Replay and repackaged, um, you know, Exit Stage Left, uh, this show, and a show of hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they included the uh, the bonus audio CD of the Grace concert as well. And then subsequently, a couple of years later, they released um, both the video and the audio versions um, individually. You know, you and I had talked a little bit before this recording about how about a lot of things but we talked about how we weren't quite sure if the audio recording and the video recording were the exact same takes and uh i think the more i've watched it i still don't know i know for sure that there are times where i'm like oh this this track is the same as the audio or i'm watching and i go well this i don't remember that happening in the audio version again we have to do like an a b comparison which i haven't done quite to that extent what do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of in the same same boat. I mean, it, so th this particular um, package was filmed over three nights at uh, actually in Toronto at the Maple Leaf Gardens uh, Center, and it was filmed on September. I guess it was September 20th, 21st, and 22nd of 1984. Um, and it doesn't really say, at least that I could find anywhere, um, you know, which tracks were pulled from which night. So clearly there could be some differences between, um, you know, what we hear on the audio version and what we see on the video. For me, the thing that initially keyed off that they might be different was um, Distant Early Warning, which um, for me, I was hearing uh, more of an echo on the audio CD uh, in the vocals than I was hearing in the video. And I did go back and kind of listen to the video again. And it, it, I think it's still there. It's just, um, maybe buried a little bit more in the mix. Yeah. It could be a mixing discrepancy. Um, Potentially. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but uh, you know, um, considering they filmed for three nights, it's sort of a mystery to me why they didn't include the entire, concert set list in the video or the audio releases in 2006 just simply because they could have fit it yeah exactly so i just wonder where those materials are if, if it still exists somewhere and if maybe someday someday they'll see the light of day yeah i think at some point we'll, we might be hurting or starving for content so bad that that um anthem starts releasing all that kind of those kinds of things but let's look at the tracks that didn't quite make it onto the record um kind of surprising in some some ways uh we start out with spirit of radio and unlike exit stage left we actually get to hear the track that opened up the show right you know the other thing is in general this set list and the list that made it onto the album are pretty much in order they're chronologically organic you know what i mean they're they're in a sense yeah in the same places but we skip subdivisions and body electric uh body electric especially surprising uh because it's a great track on that record and you know subdivisions is this yeah, brand absolutely. new song it's the first one from their last record there's something about big hits from the previous record to me that i find interesting it's you know the record's now an old record because it's no longer the newest and for any band i'm talking about it's always interesting to me to see what what they do with that last album's material do they throw it in the set list where do they put it in the set list it always tells me how they view that material that has now aged and since it's so early in the set it it says a lot for subdivisions however we don't even get to hear it on this record um, and it's the first opportunity we've had on a live album to hear subdivisions. It wasn't around when they made Exit Stage Left. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 really kind of bizarre. 
And like I said, with three with three shows and recording three different shows, it just seems like they should have had the material. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it did seem like they were trying to constrain the VHS release to around an hour, you know, give or take. But um, you know, when they originally released it in '84, '85, um, although clearly, you know, mo you know, movies were on VHS, so they could have run it longer if they wanted to. Um, you know, it sort of makes sense for like you know maybe later in the set like Red Barchetta you know omitting that since it was on Exostage Left. Yes, that makes more sense. But uh, but yeah, subdivisions and and some of the other um, you know I guess the other tracks they omitted were all from Grace. I wonder. So, like, you I don't know, know. Maybe they thought they. I think Red Lenses is is justified. I, I, that's not a knock on Red Lenses, but I don't think that's necessarily the most live friendly song. So I get that, and it was performed as an encore, by the way, which is sort of sort of goes against the grain for what we've known Rush to be, you know their encore material to be ever since. It was never a place for new material, uh, but uh, I something tells me Between the Wheels was simply too heavy to put on the album something tells me they're like i don't you know i think they look down they look at that album sorry they look at that song now with a lot of pride i think they really like between the wheels so the fact that they played it but left it off the record maybe it was just too heavy <laughs> maybe they wanted it to be um slightly more uh you know friendly to bigger audiences or something Yeah, or maybe, or maybe they thought the video was skewing a little, a little too heavy towards the Grace Under Pressure tracks. Mm -hmm. um, like you mentioned earlier, if you look at the set list for that tour, um, they actually played seven of the eight tracks on any given night. And if you look at the span of you know all the tour dates, they actually played every song on the album at least once. I'm, I'm trying to think so, what um, song. You know, it was you really said, heavy. You said seven of eight. Which song are we omitting? Well, so they they swapped out. Um, Kid gloves. And they after started image. the tour playing after playing after image, uh -huh. and then they replaced it with kid gloves. Yep. Uh, later in the tour. Um, actually, just a few days before the uh, the recording of the video, and then of course they omitted it mm -hmm. from the video. Two songs that I imagine would be amazing to hear live, compared to Red Sector A. Like I love Red Sector A. I don't think it's got as much energy as after image or kid gloves and we all know after image is a very rare thing we don't ever really get to hear that or we we don't get to hear it they, they hadn't played it since and they hardly played it on its own tour yeah yeah i mean i think that one's probably just too heavy for the band you know to play and then kid gloves to kind of resurrect that live give kid gloves is just dripping with energy i'm surprised that was a track they didn't want to play live full time and I don't know that we've heard it since. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure on um, Kid Gloves being uh, resurrected anytime later. How do you feel about medleys? We get a lot of them on this record. Um, I think the medleys they did on this album were overall done pretty well. Um, trying to think there was one cut that i thought was a little awkward I'm trying to look through my notes here to see and that was actually for me it was um it wasn't officially on the track listing listed as a medley but it sort of felt like it in the um in the way the audio was put together was vital signs transitioning into the finding my way in the mood medley oh that one didn't feel um, too good the for you. transition from vital signs yeah, that one felt a little weird. Just a little little bit odd to me. Now, I thought Vital Signs... But I thought the first medley was great. I, I really liked the first medley, you know, the YYZ to Temples to Tom Sawyer. Um, I like that they, they put in two verses and choruses for Temples, which, um, so you got actually a little more time with it than yeah. we've had in some of the later, some of the later uh, renditions of that. Sure. You know, and, I wrote down... And I kind of... Oh, go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say the the transition from YYZ into Temples, you know, where they did it, I think, um, you know, doesn't take anything away from YYZ. So it's, you know, it's kind of kind of cool where they cut, where they chose to cut between those two. I wrote down in my notes in like the section where it's in general, not about a specific song. I just wrote Alex Pants 
Ged Hare, Neil Rattail. All three of them have something specific in this video. That's so funny that you mentioned that. I've got a, I, I took some notes as well about kind of just the fashion statements they were making on this tour. And, you know, it kind of goes along with the, the overall 80s thing. And I think it gets even a little crazier as you get a little bit later. Um, at least at this point, Getty didn't have the, uh, the coonskin hat haircut. But, um, yeah, I took the same notes that you did. Um, I actually thought Neil's look, other than the rat tail, was pretty cool. I like the baseball cap when uh, whenever he had the headphones on. Yeah. That was uh, that was pretty cool. Um, the shoulder pads on Getty and Alex were pretty overbearing. <laughs> and um, you know this this may this probably dates you. I don't know whether probably some of the listeners out there will know what I'm talking about here, but I'm, I was looking at Getty's outfit and I'm like, is he wearing Z Cavaricci pants or what's going on here? Um, you can look those up online on Wikipedia, but it was a a big thing in the eighties. It was like these high-waisted pants with just super baggy legs on them. <laughs> and it looked to me like that's what he was wearing. And of course, Alex was starting to, to sport the flock of seagulls, haircut, seagulls yeah, haircut. That's right. Uh, I don't necessarily hate that haircut. One of the things, no, it wasn't bad. Uh, one of the things that in general through the whole album I thought of was, you know, is this guitar, the guitar tone is like overly compressed and kind of washed out and i thought is the guitar too loud in this mix initially like at first i think oh the guitar is just too loud or is it just the wrong tone is the tone just so bad that it sounds like there's too much of it something about the guitar on every single track regardless if it's of a new one if it's a new one or an old one is just a little too grace under pressure for me Hmm, interesting. I, I actually liked it, but again, that may just be because those are the, you know, that's kind of the era that I liked the most. Um, you know, this, this definitely, as we saw from the video, this is when Alex was sporting uh, kind of his, you know, very customized Fender Strat style guitar. Uh -huh. um, you know, I think it was really just the, a Fender body. I think everything else he had sort of hacked together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I don't know if you saw in the, the liner notes where he, he, he kind of jokes about his equipment, but um, I guess he, he had nicknamed all of those guitars the Hinter Sportscaster. Right. Which, uh, um, yeah, you know, if you, if you freeze frame on the video and you're looking at the headstock and you're trying to, you know, where's the Fender logo, it's, it's, it's not there. Right. And I was like, what does that say? But you yeah, know, he I... actually has the Hinter Sportscaster imprinted on the headstock. I remember doing that when I was real young and I was really into guitar brands. I wanted to know. I'm like, everything about that guitar screams Fender, Stratocaster, except for the, the pickup switch is in the wrong spot and uh, you, could, you can't find the word Fender on the headstock. As much as your, your head thinks it should be there, I think you're right. I think the only thing about that guitar that's Fender is the body. Yeah, I think the, the neck that he used was from a Canadian company called Shark. And um, he was actually experimenting with a Floyd Rose bridge at that time. Yep. Um, some of the some of the guitars had the um, had the tuners on them, and some of them didn't. The uh, the micro tuner knobs, just depending on which guitar it was. Um, there's actually a guy. This was years ago who had done um, some pretty true to form replicas of these guitars. I don't think he ever sold any, but um, you can find uh, if you do kind of some searching on the web, you can get details on kind of what was used in terms of the pickups and everything. Mm -hmm. I wrote but the nickname came out of, um, the nickname for the guitar came out of, came out of, um, or I guess morphed out of, uh, the producer they had on Grace Under Pressure, which was Peter Henderson. Meaning he named it. Well, no, I think it was Alex's, uh, inside joke back to Peter. Oh, I see. Um, by calling it the Hinter Sportscaster. <laughs> I wrote down the best fear will ever sound. I don't know if we'd, I, maybe I kind of remember maybe seeing that they played fear in its entirety later, but um, I don't know if I've heard that recording or if it's happened, but I don't think fear will ever sound better than this grace under pressure era where they've got that, sort of sound dialed in i think it fit the fear trilogy so so nicely the three of them back to back like that i've always said witch hunt is 
it's such a dishonor to hear Witch Hunt when it's not live because nothing is as good as Witch Hunt when it's live compared to the studio version. Everything about those three tracks I think is best and will never be better than on this record. What do you think? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's awesome that they actually, uh, you know, that they did this release and that we have this captured in a professional, you know, recording situation. Yeah. Um, because like you said, um, the trilogy, you know, they played it live on this tour, obviously. And then I believe they continued it on the Power Windows warm-up tour. The warm-up but tour, yeah. that was it. Yep. Which you can essentially think of as um, an extension of this tour. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, of the three songs in the trilogy, I think the only one that they ever resurrected again was Witch Hunt. Uh, oh, that's which to point. me was surprising. Yeah. Um, I mean, because The Weapon and The Enemy Within are both great tracks. I mean, particularly The Weapon. I would have loved to have heard that uh, in later years. And you know what? That's a great point I had never considered. And what surprises me most about that is The Enemy Within always seemed like an essence of Rush song. It always seemed like a song that perfectly captured what they were, a song that they would love playing, that they were really proud of, that appeared live very frequently. And yet it's the opposite of that. It never, we never see the enemy within in a set list after this, essentially. Yeah. Crazy. Now, the next thing I want is on this next tour, I want to hear, um, I want to hear the the Fear series in its entirety, uh, meaning these three with Freeze. I'm dying to hear Freeze live. So on this yeah, next I, tour that they do, which I've got tons of insider information, you guys haven't heard about it yet, but on this next tour that they're planning, <laughs> I want to hear Freeze. Yeah, that would be incredible. That would be Especially really, adjacent really cool. to those other three songs. They're so separated. The last song we heard on Freeze was The Enemy Within in 1984. Then we get 2002. It'd be really interesting to hear those four together in this group that they've, uh, you know, already been labeled as the fear, part four of fear. You guys understand. I'm stuttering a little bit. Yeah, and to hear just sort of how um, they would render, like, the weapon and The Enemy Within this many years later. Right. Yeah, it's a very, I've said before, it's a very different live sound that they have right now. Or in the last decade, you know? Yep. So what's a yeah, track, absolutely. What's a track on this album that stood out to you a bunch? I've got, aside from the Fear Trilogy, I've got one song, one or two tracks that are, uh, that kind of stand out. Um... Yeah, let me think about that. I, I think in terms of um, standing out in the sense that um, I would have probably omitted it and picked one of the other uh, tracks that they that they chose to omit, for me, would be New World Man. That would be the one I would probably drop from this particular re- release and substitute one of the other tracks. Um, for me, that? you know, I, pro- I probably actually would have um, brought in After Image if I had to pick one of the other tracks that they omitted, but not far behind that. And you mentioned this earlier that, you know, red lenses was not, um, you could see why that would be omitted. Mm Um, I kind of agree with you, but the one exception to that was, was red lenses was where they had the breakout, uh, drum solo. And a a bass solo at the beginning, I believe. Yeah. So, um, as far as I know, this is the only official live release that doesn't have a drum solo. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's interesting you said New World Man because that was the number one song that stood out to me on this album That that is different than it's ever been. And not to say they perform it a ton live, but um, just Getty's bass, man. Getty's going nuts. He's slapping dub bass, right? I've never heard him take a part, you know, if he's going to make a crazy bass part, it's usually in the studio recording. And in this case, the bass part in that studio recording is relatively lackluster for Getty. And um, he goes completely bonkers on this live recording, and I love it. And it has an energy that I 
haven't heard from that song elsewhere. And again, it's with subdivisions as well. This song is one record old. So it's it tells me a lot about on a Grace Under Pressure tour which Signals songs they pull out. It tells me a lot about how they feel about Signals. And you know what else I noticed? The crowd seems to go kind of nuts during a few of these tracks. I noticed it on New World Man, I noticed it on Red Sector A, and I noticed it on Just an Early Warning especially. But New World Man has uh, it's an upgrade, sort of, in my head. Interesting. I have to go listen to that again from a, a different perspective. I, I did like the fact that Alex swapped in a Telecaster for that track. Yeah, much different than what we're used to from him. Yeah, pretty much every everything else in the the live set was uh, playing the strats. And didn't you feel like that kind and, of broke uh, it, broke up the sound a little bit? It gave you kind of a break. Yes. Yeah, and you mentioning the bass, I, I I have to ask what you thought of. I mean, the entire set, Getty's <laughs> on the Steinberger. Yeah, I did really good. I I went like what thirty minutes without whining about that bass. I hate that thing. I hate it. Yeah, so and I'm much. the one who brought it up. And. <laughs> You know, I'll say this. I wanted to hate it more than I did when I watched it this week, when I watched this video. I wanted to hate it a lot. I wanted to hate it as much as I hate it on the studio album. That's what I'll say. On the studio album, I think it sounds putrid. I think it sounds a bit better in this live setting. There are times when, and I talk about Getty Lee's finger technique very often and how to achieve his tone on the bass, and we and I talk a lot about how it comes from his fingers and the, the, the way he's attacking the strings more so than the bass itself or any kind of effects that he's using. So you, you see him digging a lot of times on this album. You see his right hand fingers really having to work. And I, I'm thinking in my head, like, Eddie, <laughs> like, I know it's trendy to play a bass with no headstock and no body right now. Cause it's the middle of the eighties, but you know, that sounds like trash. <laughs> so, because according to people that are my, my dad's age, that's just every bass player who was successful was playing a Steinberger back then. So I'm glad it only lasted one and a half tours or whatever. But um, I hate it. It sounds better than I thought it would. But uh, it's still, you know, I'm spoiled now that I have this this modern jazz bass sound with the, it's kind of saturated with distortion and real twangy. That's what I love. And even back in the old days, we had that clunky in a good way, clunky, throaty-sounding Rickenbacker. Uh, I'll even say good things about the wall bass down the road, but uh, you won't find me saying many good things about the Steinberger. It definitely yeah. it doesn't. Don't you think it kind of fits the uh, the computerized sort of sound that we have on Grace Under Pressure? Yeah, it definitely does, and it fits uh, kind of like your dad's probably mentioned. Just the, you know, it was a very um, visually centric era that decade with all of the you know mtv um you know kind of the prominence of mtv at that point in time uh-huh i'm so, sure um, i'm sure in 1984 it, it looked like it looked modern it looked like the new thing oh yeah yeah well what do you in think fact, about I, that I, you know i kind of what do i think of what of the steinberger um i am not as much of a bass efficient as you, I was as you gonna, are um, i was gonna I, say be careful there is a right answer <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think, um, as far as this particular release goes, I thought the mix was, was, was really pretty good. Um, I thought there was good separation between the instruments. Um, nothing was too, uh, over aggressive in the mix. And, you know, for my ears, at least I thought the bass sounded, sounded okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's ever been a time where I thought Getty's bass was not sufficient i mean maybe at times on grace I, i'm really not in love with the tone on the actual uh studio album but uh, i'll get over it you know i didn't i only had it for one album so i can't complain too much yeah exactly uh it, there was a moment yeah. in, in closer to the heart that i wanted to bring up and it's uh it's, there's two points here. I wrote bass pedals with three exclamation points because I thought that song really benefited from having these big, fat, low bass pedals behind it, much like Witch Hunt or Xanadu or any of these songs that use these big bass pedals. 
and I don't really get that in the later versions of this song when it's performed live. I don't know if he used the bass pedals as prominently, but you hear it at the beginning of the song where the band cuts out and Neil goes to the chimes, ding, 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 ding. Getty's got this big, fat, low D underneath the whole thing, and it's really a nice touch. At the same time, right after those chimes is a just a small chunk of silence before philosophers and plowmen. And right. the band plays it like they do on the record where there's no, it's just all in time. There's no meter changes. There's no omission of beats. It's not like, hey, let's leave a beat off right here. And the band has done this throughout their history where in a live setting, they'll, t- they'll add or remove beats just to kind of play with people's ears. And they don't right. do that here. I always thought that was an inappropriate place to kind of mess around with the meter just for my own tastes not to say they're wrong but um they don't do that on this recording so it's it's that coupled with those bass pedals added in that really make this a really cool uh recording for me yeah i i think this is a really good recording as well and and you mentioned big audience reaction before for me i i kind of noted i thought that that this song got the biggest reaction um at least at this point in the show um at least from the watching the video um, you know, I think they did a pretty wide pan of the arena and pretty much everybody was on their feet. You saw some physical lighters in the air and, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. I thought during Red Sector A, I'm like, man, is this the first time it's gotta be the first time Getty's been on stage without a bass around his shoulder. Right. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was like, "Oh my god, he, he took the bass completely off." And he's done that in the in the future, but up until this point, we've never seen Getty on stage with without a guitar on, which is kind of right. a cool moment. Same, I mean, obviously with Neil, I don't think I think this is the first tour he had an electronic kit, right? So this might have been the first time we see him turning around, putting headphones on, like you were saying. Yeah, you know, I was hoping that they were going to um, somewhere on the video we would see the kit spin, but I, I never, I never caught it. Yeah, it, it seemed like they they always that done a the lights. Thing? Wasn't that something well, that was, only happened uh, on like a later tour? That's a good question. I mean, it seemed to me like the kit was rotating um, because the uh, the Simmons pads were, you know, in the front when he was. Oh, yeah, he was yeah, doing yeah, the songs so, on the electronic kit, so something had to move. It must have then. One of the other m- notes I made on Witch Hunt was that um, was Getty's sideways keyboard microphone and how like completely displaced it was compared to his main mic. So when he goes over to the keyboards to sing, he's facing the complete like completely sideways at a 90 degree angle. Whereas now he, it's an angle, but it's definitely not that sharp. It just looks so funny. It's like if Alex were playing and he turned to his left to look at Getty, he'd just be looking at Getty's backside. His back would be completely facing Alex. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't notice that. I mean, I wonder if that's maybe a function of just the sheer amount of gear he had up there. Right. I, we- did, I did notice. I did notice that. I mean, certainly compared to you know more recent tours he uh he had quite uh quite a rig and he had right and he had to because those i mean those keyboards have done nothing but get smaller since then yeah did did some of the beginning tracks seem kind of fast to you um the one that stood out to me as definitely being fast was actually later in the set, um, YYZ. Yes. I thought it. I thought it started out on hyperdrive, and yes. I, I thought it was pretty cool <laughs> that you, you you just felt the whole band just kind of slow down <laughs> and settle into you know a more realistic kind of groove. Um, uh, those middle sections were Neil, and I, same for me by the way. That was another track where I'm like, whoa, oh man, and that's notoriously a track they play slower live because it's so you know so quick to begin with did you notice that uh in the in the video they cut to that fan air drumming during neil's solos they cut oh, yeah. to him like yeah. three he, times <laughs> yeah that's gotta be i mean it's probably uh his one of his claims to fame oh yeah you, you know, know he's only knows how many times he's brought that up <laughs> bragging about it all the time um, one of the, one of the things I remembered from this album as I'm watching the video I go oh this is that this is that live album 
where Alex goes crazy. He, he, he improvises a bit during the bridge on YYZ, the keyboard part. Normally, the keyboards play their thing, and then Alex comes in with his part. But on this one, he plays a little bit before, but when he gets to the normal part, he improvises a ton, and he really opens it up and stretches his arms a bit, or, or spreads his wings, or whatever the expression is, with musicians. Uh, are any of you musicians? I would love to know musician things. Uh, but I, I always kind of loved Alex stretching around and and uh, finding new notes during that solo. I thought I always thought it was a nice application of improvisation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. As as we all know, they don't they don't do a lot of improv in their shows. So when we get to to, to get a little bit of it, it's pretty cool. Um, speaking of that, I think this was the. Um, Certainly the first live recording where they did um, kind of the little breakout towards the end of Closer to the Heart. Yeah, definitely. You know, I always talk about how in R40 I enjoyed not having that, only because I had heard it so often, and I knew it was coming, and it, it's been different. You know, on different tours they change it a little bit or have a different style that they go and do for the jam. But this was this seemed like it was like maybe one of the first times they had done it, right? Yeah, you know, I think it was. I was looking a little bit online to, to kind of research this point, and um, it seems like maybe it was only introduced about a week prior to that uh, recording. Oh, wow. So they just – I wonder if they had extra time. I mean, if they if that's the case, why, why not just add another song? I guess they didn't have three minutes of extra time. They had – No. They had a few seconds. Yeah, it was a pretty short. Uh, I kind of agree with you. The the really extended ones that they've done later, I, I could kind of do without those. But this one was just like just a nice little, you know, ten yeah, or fifteen second kind of to the point. A nice kind of break. Extension. Um, another. I have two more points on the Fear trilogy, and that's that the weapon, yeah. or I mean, I'm sorry, the Vital Signs was. I just wrote super tight. Like it was. It felt completely. Um, it was almost perfect. Like it was such the opposite of what you would call a sloppy performance. It was real, totally dialed in. It felt like they had really hit their stride with this song. And the other thing is the weapon has, um, what's his face with the 3d glasses. And if you don't wear your glasses, you'll only be watching in one half D. Yeah, exactly. That was uh, a concert. Yeah. Count Floyd from uh, second city TV back in that uh which was kind of popular back in that era um yeah i tried to um find out whether you know they were uh, starting to project some actual video content behind the band uh for this tour and so they did have the intro as you pointed out and i was trying to find out whether there actually was um a 3d effect for that little segment um I don't have a definitive answer, I, you know. Given the the listener base you have, maybe there's somebody out there who can uh, comment back to you after the show oh, and, you, and let us know if they were been, at the show. You think it may have been simply just for just for the joke for the people that are watching the video, but not for the people at the actual yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was kind of a running gag that he had um, and this this show where uh, Count Floyd was a recurring character. He was basically supposed to be like kind of one of these, uh, you know, um, kind of cheesy uh, horror TV show hosts. Uh-huh. And part of what he was trying to do was to get, you know, his television audience to like stay tuned and watch whatever was coming up. So he would kind of make up things about, you know, hey, what we're going to watch is 3D or whatever. So, um, it, you know, it could be just sort of an inside joke, kind of a take take off on that. Um now, the video that they show, I mean, at the end of it, you see is he kind of moves his head in and out of the frame. So um, it certainly could be a 3D effect there, but uh, I just wondered whether uh, whether they actually would have done that. Uh, you know, I'm pretty pretty confident they didn't uh, hand out 3D glasses on every tour date <laughs> for that tour. Yeah. So then you say, well, you know, and if they, using the technology they had back then, 3D, uh, seeing 3D without the glasses on looked really horrible, sure. right? Because they were se- separating the reds and the, and the blues. Um, so then I wondered, you know, would they have actually um, modified the footage 
and done that you know processing work to make it 3d just for the video or just for this particular set of shows and that to me just seemed a little bit unlikely but that's a cool hey, maybe there's some maybe there's somebody out there who's at the show who actually remembers i bet I, I, I bet there is i mean we've got a, a pretty diverse group of listeners i bet somebody knows so let us know please um cool that's all i got ted is there something else you want to say about grace under pressure live yeah let me just kind of um quickly look through the remaining notes that i had here i think we hit most of the key points you know one thing i wondered about um just going back to kind of the odd timing of the release of this video um you know, I think the fact that it was video only, maybe some of that can be explained by just it being sort of that MTV era. And, um, you know, just the demand for video content, since this was, you know, 84, 85, we were still fairly in that, in that cycle. So there might've been some, some marketing demand just to have more video. Yeah. Content. They said, just forget the audio. Let's, let's just do the video where the money's at. Right. But then the other thing I wondered is, you know, this show is more or less uh, within a couple months of Neil's 10-year anniversary with the band. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, maybe they're commemorating kind of uh, their 10th anniversary to a certain degree. Yeah, it's a, I guess that's definitely possible. Let's see. Yeah, you know, I think you asked me earlier about what I think my favorite song was on this particular album or video. Um, for me, I think it's actually Vital Signs, which uh, comes in right after the, it's actually the first track of the encore um, that we see on the video, at least. Mm -hmm. And for me, the reason that one stands out, like you mentioned earlier, it's a really tight recording. It's, it's really well done. Um, but for me, it's just watching Neil on that video um, I don't know that I've ever seen him have kind of as much fun um, in a live performance than I have in that particular particular song. It's funny that we see Neil like flipping his sticks a lot in this video. Even like, you know, we see him throw him way up in the air. But even just when he's playing a groove, he'll kind of like flip the si the stick. He'll throw it up in the air. He'll do a 360. He'll catch it and keep playing just out of nowhere. Not, you know, he's like very showy on this one. Yeah, he is. Absolutely. There were several times where he did some really big throws. And, um, you know, I think you guys were talking about uh, last week with the Exit Stage Left video, how it didn't really feel live in some ways. Just yeah. part of it, just the cuts between the tracks, but then just the way they mixed the audience. Um, you know, here it, it definitely felt live to me, I thought the whole the whole album mm -hmm. um and when getty did or when neil did those big throws you would definitely hear kind of the crowd roar and um you know on vital signs he did a lot of uh, just one-handed drumming and he was using uh, the other hand to do you know, a lot of stick twirling or at one point he was even kind of uh doing a little kind of conducting you know of the rest mm -hmm. of the band mm -hmm. so i thought it was pretty cool that he was just kind of playing around a little bit which uh you know, obviously we don't see as much of that in later years yeah, you know, he's doing all that playing, and yet it's still so tight. That's I just thought that was one of the crispest, crispest. <laughs> it was just one of the most solid performances on the record. And um, I guess at some point you could say Vital Signs is sort of a veteran of a song being two albums old, three albums old. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Movie Pictures was, I guess, the second most represented album on this particular tour it's kind of interesting they didn't play limelight though um which is only one of i think two or three tours that they haven't yeah powerwindows.com says this is one of only three tours in which limelight was not included in the set um either full-time or as an alternate uh and that's presto and r40 are the others but i uh that might not be right because we already said they did well maybe it was played occasionally on the moving pictures tour maybe that's the difference right but yeah i agree with you vital signs was a was a great track and i thought even getty's voice on that that track was just fantastic 
um, you know, I kind of took a note that it's, you know, maybe not quite his peak performance, but it was pretty close right? in terms of pulling that song off. And, and in general, you know, one thing that struck me is, I'm sure it did you as well, just listening to this album was just how, you know, effortless it was for Getty in terms of uh, his vocal performance back then. It's so nice to hear him not have to struggle. And just, I just want yeah. to clarify, they, they did play Limelight on the Pictures Tour, obviously, but they didn't include it on Exit Stage Left. That's where I'm getting confused from last uh, our last episode when we were talking about how it was excluded from the album. Cool. Okay. All right, Ted. Well, thanks so much for helping me out with Grace Under Pressure Live, dude. Absolutely. It was a great album, and I uh, appreciate you having me on the show, and uh, look forward to hearing the rest of the, the live album series as it comes out. Yeah, I've been thinking about how my homework is going to get increasingly longer as we move forward each week here because pretty soon we'll be you know we'll be doing our 30 or something and i'll have to sit down for three hours and watch the whole thing whereas now they're so short it doesn't take too much time yeah you're right you, you've got a lot of uh, homework in front of you <laughs> but it's it's the best kind of homework i've ever had so i won't complain yeah too much. And, and it's a great thing i think for the listeners too at least for me it's 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 uh, giving me an opportunity to kind of refresh myself on some of these, um, you know, albums that I haven't listened to in a while. Um, right. Just to kind of rotate them back in to uh, bring them back into rotation and, and give them a spin again. It's fun. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And uh, thanks again to Ted for coming on to the show to help me out. I really appreciate all the work that my guests do to help me run the show with these uh these album series and next week we'll be back with something i'm really excited about a show of hands uh so we'll see you guys later thanks